just for the just for the tape. So, hello everybody. Welcome on Tuesday. That's great. That's fabulous. So, um, we are all here, and Patty tells me everything's working, so it's a miraculous day. So on this Tuesday, and um, I've looked, I've looked ahead at the weather forecast. In response to my personal prayers, it looks like things are going to cool off next week. So I appreciate any support you all can give me in this effort to bring the temperature down because this is insane. Because the first day of fall is tomorrow, Thursday, something right like here. So it should not be 97 degrees on the first day of fall. Even if you're in North Texas, that's, that's just not right. So I don't really have any announcements in that we are going to be here on Tuesdays all the way up to the two weeks when Patty and I and some of you and Lauren and Creighton, we will all be on this pilgrimage to Israel. And we will only miss two weeks. Patty and I are fly home on Sunday. So I'm going to go ahead and have my Monday class. That's risky. I don't know what shape I'll be in Monday after flying back from, from Israel. But, and we'll have the Tuesday class. And um, today we are going to wrap up chapter 11. We're gonna, I want to talk a little bit about communion. And then we will plunge into chapter 12. And it's so much easier than some of the things we've talked about in the past few weeks. It's so much easier to understand Paul and and hear what he's having to say. It's, it's much clearer than when he is wrestling with women's hairdos. <laughs> I get that myself, okay? I, I get why that would be difficult. So, in any event, um, would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here on this Tuesday. They had the opportunity to just come here together for a time of fellowship, a time to immerse ourselves in your word, um, a time to tune out the world out there and all the troubles and all the things that want our attention and all the to-do lists and just come here for the next hour and 15 minutes and take a deep breath and strive to hear Paul, to hear Paul well and to consider what he is not only saying to the folks in Corinth, but what he is, how we can bring that into our own lives today. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the final section of chapter 11 is about communion. And we read through all that, so I'm not going to read through all of that again. That's what we did last week. But I do want to talk about communion again because this is the oldest writing we have about communion. And as we saw last week, it's very liturgical. He includes in it the uh, tradition a liturgy that 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 was that he, he was passed on to him and that they have been using and this is only 20 years after Jesus Jesus's death and resurrection if you look at chapter um, 11 verse 20 23 I'll, just, I'll read that part for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In my blood, Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay? So it's just, I just think it's so wonderful that we have this little piece of, of liturgy of, uh, that comes to us from just a very short number of years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the Christian church for well nigh under 2,000 years has always carried on this tradition. Indeed, we do, right? And so these words sound familiar to us, and we know these words. Unfortunately, in Corinth, they're embedded in some really bad practices of the Lord's Supper, which probably is more like a meal. You know, our, our way of doing communion is not a meal. Sometimes I give pull off a big enough piece of bread, but he tells me that it's nearly lunch for people, but you know, okay, whatever. So, <laughs> so but, but back then, as far as we can tell, it was more of a meal. And what's happening in Corinth is that people are forgetting that this is Christ's meal. And so they're coming and the rich people are not eating with the poor people and the rich people are bringing food and drink and indulging themselves. There are people who are getting drunk there and the poor people are looking on and, and you know, the poor people don't have a good meal throughout the entire week. And the rich people aren't sharing and, and Paul just, Paul's aghast at the whole thing because they're not understanding what it means to be unified in Christ. I get that, unif that being unified is difficult. There are a lot of divisions in this world. There are a lot of divisions in our world. They're not the same as the divisions in the first century. For example, one of the things that people keep trying to divide us on is the basis of race. Well, that's kind of a non-issue in the first century. That was not something that people were divided by, but race, religion, economics, politics now. Um, it's, and we are called to be, to be unified, to be one body in all things, including, of course, when we share in the Lord's Supper. And that's Paul's point, and, and he is greatly disturbed and angry with the Corinthians because of their practice of the Lord's Supper. And it reminds us that we need, always need to consider our practice of the Lord's Supper. That it is something we need to teach our children. And we need to take seriously that on the Sundays when we take the Lord's Supper, it is a special time, it is a different time than, than the rest of our week or even the other worship services. It's a time we come together in one body to share in this meal to step out of our time into God's time um, and proclaim, as Paul put it, proclaim to the world the death, the resurrection, and the return of Christ. So um, it, it should be, I actually have known people in my life who stayed away from church on Communion Sunday. Ah, they just didn't want to get up in front of everybody and go down to the front. And, no, it's special. For Methodists, 
You know, there are a lot of traditions around and understandings of communion. For Roman Catholics, they believe that the underlying substance of the bread and wine change into the body and blood of Christ, even though the surface, the stuff you taste and smell and handle, remain bread and wine. All the way over to Baptists, for whom it's just remembering of what Jesus did. And we Methodists, given our history and given our way, we strive to find the extreme center of it all, the Via Medea, and we hold that there is a mystery in what happens. But when, um, uh, when the elder blesses the sacraments in some deep and mysterious, and I'm comfortable with that word, deep and mysterious way, Christ is present with us, in a way, Christ is not present with us elsewhere. That, I think, is the point. And that is why I would say we, for in communion, we step out of, we step out of our day-to-day. -day. We step out of our normal daily timeline into this, into this space and time with God and, and our fellow Christians. Don? Coming from the Episcopal and the Lutheran Church that I have belonged to over the years, we took communion every Sunday. Yes. Methodists only do it, or at least this, do it once a month. Yes. If it's so important, why don't we do it? Well, why don't we offer a service that does it? We did. Is the, is, is there, yes, I will. So the question is, why don't, some traditions do communion every week. Now, I grew up in Episcopal churches that did not. Do communion every day. They did it on the first Sunday of the month. Roman Catholics doing communion is doing church, right, in masses. Baptists do it once a quarter, maybe twice a year even. And Methodists recognized that there were an increasing number of Methodist churches that were beginning to do it very infrequently. And so that's when the commission was formed and they looked at the issue and they urged churches to do it more often and to offer it more often. And for a long time, we had an 8.15 Sunday morning service yeah. every Sunday that offered communion. I don't know if that service is still meeting. Is that service still meeting? I'll look to Lauren because she might know. There are Methodist churches that do it every week. Yeah. It's, it's just the church and so, you know, I hear you. And to John Wesley's thing, like, the Methodist came out of that because he said we should do it frequently. Yes. It's like that nice vague word. Frequently. Kind of up to, yeah. Yeah, kind of frequently. So, you, when we might look around, I might look around and see if they're doing it at the, I think there is an 815 service, but I don't know if they're offering it at 815 every Sunday, as they did for a long time, all of which changed with COVID. That's what changed things and threw it up in the air. So, anything else before we march onward? Yes. 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 Of course, I lived in the parking lot. But a communion letter went out. There was a special offering. It was like a big deal. And I think there's something to be said 
See, Sharon grew up in the EUB, which merged with the Methodist Church in 1968 to create the UMC. The UMC is not as old as I am, and I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> so in the EUB, at the EUB church you went to, they did it quarterly, and it was a special thing, and there were things put around it to make it special. Well, see, that's the, that's the flip side. You know, growing up in the Episcopal Church, there were a lot of pieces of it in the liturgy that, that did become rote for me growing up. And, and so how you strike those balances and so forth is, is what, we have, what we have to do and why sometimes churches will change their practices and then change them back. Yes? In the last couple of years, I have come to think of communion and the Lord's Prayer as connecting me all the way back 2,000 years to those first Christians and to Jesus. All the other stuff, yes, that's important too, but those two things are really important because it connects me, Jim has, all the way back. So Jim is saying, for those of you who couldn't hear Jim, that when he takes communion or when he says the Lord's Prayer, he's really aware of being connected with the very earliest Christians. We have other parts of our liturgy which take you back to Christians of a long time ago. That's why if you listen to the services for Queen Elizabeth, you will hear chunks of those services that you've heard here at St. Andrew for one occasion or another. And they connect us because indeed, Jim, we are connected to all Christians who have ever lived, or live now, or ever will be. That is what constitutes the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not just Christians who are living. It's all of those who have ever lived and all of those who will ever live before the return of Jesus. And communion, we step out of our time into that time and the past and the future all come rushing back to us. And so being aware of that and cognizant of that and grateful for that, I think is exactly the way. Absolutely. Anything else on communion before we change to chapter 12 where we have a whole change of subject? Read verse 29. Okay, 29 is for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink on judgment of, on themselves this is somebody who would come into the meal and hey it's just a meal they don't they, they don't care about the body of Christ it follows that they don't really care about Jesus you Paul is saying to them you need to come here aware of discerning that you are part of the body of Christ when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, that we are all part of this body. The metaphors used in the New Testament matter. And I would say it's the kind of thing where if you are deeply worried about it, you probably are discerning the body of Christ, right? Because I think, I think Paul, from Paul's perspective, the Corinthians just don't care. They're not worrying about it. They're not, they're not asking the question you asked, right? They're just plunging ahead and making them, eating their, the rich ones are, eating their fill and throwing back the bottle. But... And some of those might be Protestants. Like I sat and did not take mass in Staten Island because they don't want me to. Which I think is, I think it's sad. 
<laughs> I think it's crazy. I'm picking my, my adjective carefully here. They never said you could not take They never said I could not, but I know what it is. They need to be proactive if they, like we invite people to the table. There was not an open invitation to the table at St. Patrick's. I don't know. Anyway, there we go. Okay, anything else I can or can't help with? Yes. What do you, Prim, Charlotte, you've read this. What do you think Paul would say about that? Shame on you. Shame on you. <laughs> now, this is what Paul would say about that. Shame on you. You know, you're part, you are supposed to discern the body. You're part of the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is meeting on Sunday morning at 9.30. And you should be there on time. And you should be there alert and participating. Because you're not the audience. God is the audience. And you should... And, and to fly in through the back door to take communion and fly back out again, I'm sure Paul would say, no, that's not what we're doing here. But our practice of communion is different than the way they did it in the first century. They gathered and ate a big meal and all this other stuff. But you know, the fight, they were, we have writings from the time where we know that the pagans sometimes viewed the Christians as kind of cannibalistic because there were stories of these Christians getting together in the evening and eating the body and drinking the blood of the God that they worshiped. And you know, you can imagine, right? You can imagine. So yeah, anyway. Kind of like our potlucks, right, Scott? <laughs> sure, I, I don't quite get the connection. I don't know what's in the dish. I don't know what the di what's in the dish you bring, Jim, but. <laughs> or who is in the dish you bring? <laughs> Y'all ever see the movie or see the play um, Sweeney Todd? Oh, yes. That, for some reason, my son Matt saw that when he was, I don't know, 12. Or, it scared the living dickens out of that kid. He just, I think he was afraid of ending up in a pie. So... <laughs> All right, so now we have a whole change of subject. Remember, this is Paul. Might Paul have put down the pen for a few days? Now he comes back, he says, now nah, here's what I want to talk about. Might he have taken a break? Might somebody else be actually handling the pen? That's even more likely. And yeah, we do, we do not know specifically how these letters were written. This is a long letter to have done in one, to have written in one sitting. So, in chapter 12, we're going to change um, topics. In a way, it's still the, uh, the same overarching problem in Corinth is that they, they have this, they value the wrong things. They have an over-spiritualized sense of what it means to follow Jesus. And it has led them in some unfortunate directions. So, he says to them, in chapter 12, verse 1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? So let's talk about the Spirit, for just because the Spirit is going to be with us a lot here. The Spirit is God, fully and completely. 
The Holy Spirit is as much God as Jesus and the Father. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, just because we have to count to three. The Spirit is a who, not a what. And we should never refer to the Holy Spirit with impersonal pronouns like we would refer use with a chair or some other object. So the Spirit is not like, you, you don't, the Spirit is not akin to electricity or the force. The Holy Spirit is God, the person of God, okay, who does stuff. And in Scripture, in the world, in the way God works in the world, the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. The Spirit is the one through whom God works in this world. Jesus only walked on the planet for 30 years, 33 years, however long, right? So the Spirit is God's empowering presence with the ancient Israelites and with us still. But for the Corinthians who have a sense that what matters, and they have some ideas that come from Greek philosophy and other places, that what matters in life is the non-material, the spiritual, and what doesn't matter in life is the material stuff, our bodies, our houses, rocks, trees, and the rest of it. For them, it's an easy thing to get off on the wrong track about the spirit. And, and I, think it can, I think it is for us. I think a lot of Christians don't know really um, what to make of the Holy Spirit. And it would be helpful if the Holy Spirit had a name like Sally or Fred. <laughs> Pick names. But no. And, and, and that's a bit of a challenge because for us, who's, W-H-O's tend to have names. So you just have to train yourself. That's what it comes down to. You just have to train yourself to always refer to the Spirit using personal pronouns not impersonal pronouns. Pick your personal pronoun, <laughs> but it's got to be a personal pronoun, the same way you would want to be referred to, okay? So, now about the, any questions about that? Okay. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, Somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Right? That's his way of talking about all these gods and goddesses that constitute the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods and goddesses. All the little statues and figurines and the big statues to Zeus and whomever. They're mute idols. There is no Zeus. There is no Diana. They're just mute idols. Therefore, Paul writes, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So what is he saying there? Now, first of all, you 
you're smart. I mean, we all know that out of our mouth, we can form any word we want. All we have to do is move our mouth and our teeth and our tongue in a certain way to form whatever words we want. So he isn't obviously saying that, you know, that somebody who hates Jesus couldn't say the words, Jesus is Lord. But this, what he's talking about is saying them and meaning them, embracing them, proclaiming them. Because for Paul, when you come to faith in Christ, you are reborn by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells in every Christian. So all he's saying that if you genuinely are in Christ, you will never find yourself saying, well, Jesus is cursed. And if you haven't been reborn, though you can say the words, you won't really know what it means to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. It's like I go to these, I, go, I used to go to conferences, the, like the Society of Biblical Lit Literature. Big fun, okay? And there, there are scholars of the New Testament who are not believers. And I was kind of a neophyte in their world, but their stuff was different. They weren't believers. They couldn't, they didn't see it the same way as the scholars were who were believers. They, so though that's all Paul is driving at. Now why is he making this point? Because he's probably heard some things from Corinth. This is where we only have one half of the conversation, right? Something is giving rise to what he's writing here. Okay? Verse 4. Now, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Holy Spirit, the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Why is it the same God? Because there's only one God. These mutant idols are nothing. So, this is bringing together the ideas of unity and diversity. And that's what he's going to be talking about here. And he's going to be talking about how, it's, how you come to a place like, let's say, St. Andrew. There's a wide variety of gifts that God has given people here at St. Andrew. And all those gifts work together for our mission, for our purpose. They all came together to build this church. They all came together to launch the mission in Costa Rica. They all came together to create Seven Loaves and Joseph's Code and all the rest of it. There's a lot that goes into coming together with lots of different activities and lots of different kinds of work and lots of different gifts and talents and all the rest of it to make worship happen on Sunday morning. But there is one God, one Spirit, who is, who is behind it all. In the Carpal Theology series, and you're going to get an email from me this week, 
with the links to the Carpal Theology series videos, because if you're not in one of the regular small groups, you're not necessarily seeing them, but you're going to get to see them. So in one of those, I analogize this to what, Reverend Gerlach? A car wash? Louder for them all. A car wash? A car wash, yes, because, because we're, we're going through a car wash in one of these videos, and What's a car wash do? You got spinners, flippers, scrubbers, all these different parts. They all work together to do what? Do one thing, one thing. Get my car clean. That's it. I don't know. Never thought of that metaphor till we were doing this, but it works for me still. <laughs> you know, the people, my experience is that people make this this section in Paul's letter is too difficult. When, when, I, when I opened and I saw, okay, well, where are we today? Okay, wow, I like it. This can be pretty easy. This is not difficult stuff here. This is easy stuff. Um, people make it more complicated than it is, and I don't know why. It's easy stuff, and we'll see. So let's just press on. Verse 7, he says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit, the Spirit's indwelling, the Spirit's work, the manifestation of the Spirit is for the common good. So, go back to Paul, the two-by-two two matrix. Paul says, do what is a good witness to Jesus, do what builds up the church. Avoid what is a bad witness to Jesus, avoid what tear, tears down the church. We are on a common mission. You know, I was reading this week um, some uh, a preacher somewhere who was, I thought, made a good point. I think it's actually Dallas Willard's point that too often we say that what we're doing is making Christians, which is really God's work. That isn't what Jesus actually said. He said, go out and make disciples. And that's, that's a different kind of work. It's God's work to... To, to, to save people. It's our work to help them grow into genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. But that's the common work of all the churches across the globe. Has been, is now, and always shall be. So, sure, of course, we're working for a common good. And that good, that purpose is given to us by God. To one, there is given to one person, I'll add a few words here and there. To one person, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. I'm waiting for that one. A message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he, notice the personal pronoun, he distributes them to each one just as he, the spirit. And I don't care whether you put she there or not, it's personal, that's the key, determines. Now that list there, that's a very first century list. And there have been debates among Christians for 2,000 years about whether 
Some of the things mentioned in that paragraph continued after what is known as the apostolic age. There are Christian preachers and scholars who would say absolutely not at the end of the apostolic age those kind of miracles and that kind of stuff came to an end because actually miracles in the Bible only occur really in certain relatively short periods. They're not common throughout the entire narrative. It's in certain short periods. Um, but other Christians will say no. Some Christians will say, well, tongue speaking ended in the first century. Other Christians will say no. Tongue speaking continues to this day. That, even in the Methodist Church, we have charismatic, that, that's the shorthand for it, charismatic church, Methodist churches who do speak in tongues. So we make this difficult because we think this has to divide us. None of that need divide us. Methodist Church, I thought, have a long time, came to an actually very sensible place on this. To those who think that tongue speaking ended in the first century, they say, well, you know, you could be wrong about that. And respect your brothers and sisters who speak in tongues today and believe that that's genuine. And to those who speak in tongues today, don't think that that makes you spiritually superior to your brothers and sisters who don't. And I always thought that was just a very sensible way to do it. So the overall point is that God has dispensed to the church many different types of gifts for many different, per, many different uses toward a common good. Yes. Okay, so I'm being asked about tongue speaking. There are Christians still today who believe that there is this special prayer language, right? And they can put themselves in a place where they can speak that, what they believe to be that private prayer language, and that being the tongues. Because the tongues described here are not like the tongues in Acts 2. In Acts 2, everybody is speaking a language they don't know, but they're discernible languages, if you know them. This is something different. And N.T. Wright is someone, who is someone who says, look, in private, I have spoken in tongues. And I, I raise my eyebrows a bit, because, I don't know, it's nothing I've experienced, nothing I've sought to experience. But that's okay. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. If it's genuine, it is given by God in the person of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God working with us day to day in worship and in prayer and the rest of it. So, um, but if those who say the tongue speaking did end in the end of the first century, then it would be well-meaning, the tongue speaking today would be well-meaning, but just kind of just kind of gibberish. We'll see in Paul. Paul's a very sensible man. 
And he says, if, if, if y'all come together for worship and somebody's going to speak in tongues, this unknown prayer language that sounds like gibberish, there better be somebody there to interpret it. Because how could it be useful for everybody else if there isn't? And he's right. Don? Well, we don't. That's why, that's why we have disagreements. You know, sure, some people roll out linguists who will listen to tongue speaking and say, well, no, that's not a language. I, can, I can't discern anything like a language in that. But you know, other Christians will say, I know it's genuine. I've experienced it. My point is, whatever. <laughs> we, it, it, it's not a doctrinal issue that we have to divide over. We can disagree about it. It's like, do we baptize infants or do we baptize kids when they're 9 or 10 or whatever? Okay, we differ. So everything is open to interpretation? Not everything, no. Not everything by long shot. That's what the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creeds, all the great creeds of the church carry the things that are essential and around which we need to be unified. Tongue speaking isn't, isn't one of those. You know, what John Wesley followed, Richard Hooker, who followed somebody else, saying, look, in the essentials, we need to be unified. We need to be able to stand up and say the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the other creeds in the back of the hymnal, without crossing our fingers. And we need to mean it. And, but then he went on to say, but in the stuff we did disagree about, okay, people need to be free. You can believe in tongue speaking or not. That need not divide us. And then the third point is, in everything, pour out grace on one another. It's not my job to run up and tell somebody that I think their tongue speaking is gibberish. What's to be gained by that? I, there are people who want to fight that fight. I just don't understand why they feel like they need to fight that fight, but we Christians have a lot bigger issues before us. Even within the Christian community, read some of the polls about the number of Christians who would say yes to this statement. Jesus is a great teacher, but not God. That's the denial of the Apostles' Creed and the, you know, the Nicene Creed and the most foundational parts of Christianity. And that's where we need to have big conversations in my view, not about tongue speaking. In this context, the only point is that God distributes all these different kinds of gifts around the church, around the communities, in these house churches, in St. Andrews, in St. Patrick's. And it is God who is doing it and God who is distributing them and all of those are given. Why? Not for your own individual edification. No, they are given for a common good, a common purpose, for God's purpose. Okay. All right. So, let's go on. Verse, four, verse 12. Just as a, so this is his metaphor. This is his famous metaphor. Just as a body, though one, boop, here's mine, has many parts, as does mine, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. The body of Christ. Okay. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, 
whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and you can extend that list a long way. In Galatians, he adds, what does he have to add? Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, male or female. You could add black or white, Asian or Puerto Rican, or straight or gay, or whatever, whatever you want to, however you want to make these lists up. We are all one. This is, this is the unity part, okay? We, and we were all given one spirit to drink. The Holy Spirit dwells, the one, the only Holy Spirit dwells in all of us. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. I mean, look around St. Andrew, there's a lot of people here, and God love you, you're all a pretty diverse bunch in a lot of ways. <coughs> Verse 15, now, now if the foot should say, well, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. In other words, if you are, if you are in Christ, you are part of the body, period. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? You, you can conjure up lots of funky images off all of that, can't you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mr. Potato Head. Mr. Potato Head is a good place to start. <laughs> Very good, Patty. I never thought of Mr. Potato Head before. <laughs> I'll have to go back and get a Mr. Potato Head and try it. <laughs> but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? Okay? I can't merely be made up of eyes or ears or hands or feet. All the parts of my body work together for the common good of you know, moving and sustaining this person called Scott, right? As it is, there are many parts but one body. So he's holding together the unity in Christ and the diversity in talents and gifts and experience and the rest of it we have. Because you have to hold them together. Um, the Christian faith is built upon ands, A-N-D-S, not ors. Not ors. It's not three or one. God is three and one. Jesus is not fully God or fully human. He is fully God and fully human. The body of Christ is both unified and diverse. At the same time, you, go, you should not pick one. Our unity is found in Christ. Our diversity is found in the gifts and talents and all of it that we bring to this common, common good. The eye cannot say to the hand, verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. See, now we're getting somewhere. I think I'm beginning to get a sense of what Paul has in mind when he's writing this. Because I can picture the richer more powerful people in these house churches 
doing what they do outside in the public space and lording it over those who are they see as weaker, poor, without power, less important, more, indis more dispensable. And that is not God's way. It is not the way to understand the church. We have different jobs. Arthur's got his job as senior pastor of the church. Big job. A lot going on. A lot to carry. But it is not, in the deepest ways, more important than somebody who will come down here to Piro Hall and work the funerals and pull it together for the families and be there to serve the cookies and volunteer to be the one who will take on those kind of difficult jobs that are, that are virtually unseen. And see, so that's why he writes that seem to be weaker. Because they're not weaker. How, how have we been saved? Let's go to a big word. How have we been saved? Have we been saved because Jesus arrived with helmet and sword and mighty army and slew the Romans and the corrupt priests? No. We are saved because Jesus became the weakest of the weak and was crucified. A death built around weakness and shame. And he did it willingly. Jesus, the creator of the cosmos, read Colossians 15, all things were made in, through, and by Jesus, took on human flesh with all the weaknesses that come with this. The, the calculus of God in this is not the calculus of a fallen world. It's just not. It's just not. So these, the, the people who come to these house churches that are slaves, in the words of that lecture I heard once, less than human, they might be weaker in the Greco-Roman world. They are not weaker in God's world. Yes, Patty? It's not you have an online question. Good, an online question. Yes. This is from Susan Faulkner. Okay. She would like to know, was the Holy Spirit present in Genesis at the very beginning of God's creation or at Pentecost? The Holy, okay, so this is for Susan and everybody else. The Holy Spirit, let me, I'll do, a, I'll do this in a way. God always has been, is, and always shall be. The, now we'll go to the persons that, in the triune God. The Father has always been, is, and always shall be. Jesus has always been, is, and always shall be. Jesus pre-existed. Jesus became incarnate at some point, but Jesus has always been, is, and always shall be. The Holy Spirit has always been, is, and always shall be. So yes, the Holy Spirit was present at creation. Indeed, at one time in Paul's letters, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. Why does he do that? Because there is one God. And it gets your head to spinning, I know, but there you go. You A lot of things get that, my head spinning. Do you think that that is sometimes 
a little confusing to us because Jesus says, I have to go, I have to die, I have to leave you because one that's even better than me is going to come. This advocate is going to come. As if the Holy Spirit wasn't there before and the Holy Spirit was not coming until Jesus' death. It is potentially confusing in that way, Patty, that, that when Jesus says, I'm going and a better one's coming after me, is potentially confusing. But it, it, it all has to be understood that Jesus is working with his disciples who fear about what lies ahead, and he is reassuring them, okay? And Jesus has, this will sound funny, Jesus has a practical weakness that the Holy Spirit does not have, in that Jesus, incarnate, can only be in one place at one time because he's bound by a body. So, he is going to be crucified and return to the Father and the Holy Spirit will arrive and to the disciples, okay, they will experience this arrival of the Holy Spirit with great power at, on Pentecost. I'll do it the simple way, on Pentecost. Okay, now, N.T. Wright will tell a story this way. He will, he will tell the story this way. That God, the Spirit's dwelling place with the people of God was the temple. And when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians 500 years before Jesus, Ezekiel had a vision of, the temp, of, the, the, of God getting up and departing the temple and heading eastward toward Babylon. And the question is, does the Spirit of God come back? And N.T. Wright will say, it appears that Paul maybe thinks not, that the Spirit returns on, um, on Pentecost, okay? But the Spirit has always been, is now, and always shall be. But just doing different stuff. Lauren can help here, I'm one, sure. One thing for Susan that might be helpful is Genesis 1, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the water. And I would put a capital S there. Would you put a capital S there? Yeah. Some people don't put a capital S there, and I think they're wrong. They 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 fail to see that the Holy and then we could we, if in a different setting we could do look at the places in the Old Testament that specifically refer to not just the Spirit capital S but the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, and the Spirit of God goes by different names: wisdom. Shekinah, the, the Shekinah, the presence of God in the Old Testament. But the key to Susan is, and I know this is, this is telling, because I'm all, always asked all the time, you know, what about Jesus? Jesus has always been, is now, and always shall be. Go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, forward from there, and read the great Christ hymn. Um, these are all, the, that's what's funny is, that all the questions y'all ask me, these are the questions that were animating the early Christians for centuries. For centuries they were working on these questions. And they are, they are the questions that, give, that gave rise to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed. Do I have that right? And the other great creeds of the Christian faith. They're all written. They, were all, they all came about because as a result of wrestling with the kind of questions y'all asked me on Tuesday in Peril Hall at 
you know, quarter to one. And that's just kind of cool. Okay. Thank you, Susan. Okay. So let's look at verse 22 because Paul is taking this in a certain direction. He says, On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, you rich and powerful people, you. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor, you rich and powerful people, you. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. So while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. My brain just went to Mary's song in the Gospel of Luke. When Mary meets Elizabeth, she breaks out in this. The first Latin word in the Vulgate for it is the Magnificat, and there's this great piece of music Bach wrote called the Magnificat, and in because it's my soul magnifies the Lord. And in that, Mary sings about the world being turned upside down, about the poor and being lifted up. That's a key part of Scripture. A key part of Scripture is that is that is that everyone who needs lifting up is lifted up. And people who need to be brought down a notch or two, as we used to say, they're brought down a notch or two. And that's consistent, I think, in Scripture from beginning to end. Pay special attention to the widows and orphans in the law of Moses. It says in the law of Moses. Pay special attention to the alien and stranger in your land, says the law of Moses. All the same idea. Verse 26. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Okay, like if my feet hurt, nothing good is happening with the rest of me. That's true. That's a true and honest statement. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. We are in this together. In St. Andrew, if we have people who are suffering, we need to be there to help. Right? If there are people in the body of Christ who are suffering, we need to be there to help. If one part suffers, Every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, that's a big word in this world. Honor is what the whole, whole game in the Greco-Roman world is about gaining honor and avoiding shame. So if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. We are all in this together. I don't care whether you got 100 bucks in your bank account or 10 million bucks in your bank account. I don't care whether you're tall and blonde and look like a movie star or you're kind of short and squatty and getting fatter all the time like somebody I won't name. <laughs> okay? If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Is this call to unity with 
caused with the unity that that wraps around our diversity because we are diverse we're different people okay different gifts i get it you know fortunately there are people who want to like keep the books here at saint andrew and count the money and count uh, not me verse 27 now you are the body of christ okay y'all plural y'all are the body of christ talking to these house churches, talking to St. Andrew, talking to every church that's ever existed. Y'all are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. As individuals, you're a part of this body of Christ. That's why a very wise man once said, there is no healthy relationship with Jesus without a relationship with his body. I know that there are people who, for physical reasons or health reasons, can't get out much. But that's not most people who are sleeping in on Sunday morning and will still call themselves Christian. You, or think, oh, I could just sit in my living room and just, you know, yeah, I could be all by myself. Paul has no conception of an isolated Christian, none. So even though we offer online, use that as a backup, not a regular thing. Be here, be with the people. I know some of us are annoying. <laughs> I know that. I have a couple names in mind. <laughs> but no, 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 I couldn't, couldn't possibly be, no, no. But people need to be here. People need to be here. Now you are part of the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all apostles, Apostles are those who are sent forth. That's what the word simply means. Then prof, second prof, oh, stop. It's embarrassing for her, not me. Okay, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it, and God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, those who are sent forth. Secondly, prophets, those who speak forth the word of God. That's all a prophet is. They, they're, they're not crystal ball gazers. They, put, they tell forth the word of God. Third, teachers. Then miracles. Then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? And rhetorical question, no. Are all prophets? Rhetorical question, no. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. So all these gifts are given out and what's happening in Corinth, people are all caught up with it. They revel in it. They revel in their tongue speaking and they revel in this and they revel in that and it's just, ah, it's wonderful, it's great, it's fun, yay Jesus, all that kind of stuff, you know? And Paul is saying, God has given you these gifts. They're all different. They are to work toward a common good. They're all, sure, they're all wonderful. But look at the last line. Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Okay? And yet I will show you the most excellent way. I will show you the most excellent way. So it's like Paul is saying to them, oh, all that stuff, it's great, it's great, you people. 
It's wonderful. You know, God is God picks us up. Sometimes God wants to work against our pride and instill in us humility. We work for a common purpose. God gives us different gifts. But Paul is going to point the way to what really matters. Right? The more excellent gift. This is what he wants these Corinthians to put their obsession upon. Because they're, they're focused in all the wrong places. So he's not saying that one gift is better than the other. Oh, he is not. That is not, that is exactly the opposite of what he's saying, Charlotte. I keep calling you princess. Okay, he, he's not, he's not, he's not saying that. I mean, yeah, read back, read back through all of this. No, he's trying to lift up those who are seen as weaker or less honorable or whatever by the, we're all in this together, we're one, we're, we're all equal, we all have a diversity of gifts. But he knows the Corinthians are focusing on the wrong things, just as we can focus on the wrong things. Might be different wrong things, but we can focus on the wrong, on the wrong things. Um, you know, a, a lot of what sin is is not chasing after bad things. It's putting good things. In place of God. That's what a lot of it is. Placing good, putting good things in the place of God. Um, we can go wrong chasing good things if we put them at the center of our whole existence. It's like family. Family's good, 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 and good. But if you elevate family in your life above God, there's probably wreckage on the other side of that. You won't, that won't, that won't fill the hole that, that you feel. So, but now we get to the exciting part because Paul is going to show them the most excellent way. And so here we go. And nobody's getting married right now. <laughs> if y'all, that'll evident if you don't know what the joke. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I don't know how far we'll get with this. Okay, I'm going to give you a tool to use. This is a practical tool to use in your everyday life. So, I really hope to remember this. When you're out there in the world and you encounter people that that you just can't abide, remember that Jesus loves them too. Jesus loves the person that you despise the most. Jesus loves the person who has done you the most harm in this world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that love is not restricted to Christians. 
our response to almost anything, to everything, I should, I don't have to put a, to everything begins with love. And it's not a sentiment, it is what you do. And it's, it's where Paul has taken these Corinthians. There's, there's a better way to understand who they are and what God has called them to than their present understanding, and that better understanding is grounded in love. Verse 2, For if I have the gift of prophecy, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I'm the smartest darn person in the world, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. You read a passage like this and you understand why Methodists are Methodists. Are Methodists. Methodism is, was, was grounded in John Wesley's understanding that the place to begin to understand God is this statement, God is love. Nowhere else. That is the place. Linked up to the two great commandments Jesus said, to love God and to love others. And look at this. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains. Jesus talked about faith moving mountains. But I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast about it, everybody can see, because that was the way in the ancient world. You, you, you gave away stuff and you built buildings so people would say, oh my gosh, he's wonderful and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. There, there's, there's the Christian way to help people. And it's grounded in love. Love, love, love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And let me go read that again. I want to read it for you differently. And we're going to focus on Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy. He doesn't boast. He isn't proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. He isn't easily angered. And he keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It all, Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. You see? Now I'm going to give you another little tool to go back and put your own name there. When we talk about becoming better disciples 
and becoming better Christ-like. This is what we're talking about, to where I could read these words and not choke on them. That's my goal in life. Scott is patient. See, right there, I'm feeling like I'm out of the, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Scott is patient. Scott is kind. Scott doesn't envy. Scott doesn't boast. Scott is not proud. Scott doesn't dis dishonor others. Scott is not self-seeking. Now, if you are like most Christians, if you go through the paragraph like that, after a while, you have trouble speaking the words because you realize, of course, you know, that sin is still with us, and I, I disappoint myself sometimes, and I disappoint God sometimes, but this is what it means to love. This is why I say, in any wise Christian, nobody should ever disagree with me about this, because I wouldn't disagree with anybody else about this. Love in Scripture is not a sentiment. It is not to be cross-stitched. It's not a feeling that you have in your heart. It is what you do. Are you patient with others? Are you kind to others, including the ones that annoy you? Do you envy people? You know what envy is? Envy is one of the seven great vices. To envy is to um, being, is, it's being bitter because somebody has it better. That's what envy is, and it's poisonous. Poisonous. Patty and I are watching a show right now where, where envy is just sprinkled throughout it. It's just, it's, it's poisonous. Watch the movie Amadeus again with about Mozart. It's all about, it's all about Salieri's envy of Mozart's gifts, isn't it? So, so this, that's what, that's why we have to encounter this, these paragraphs in a non-wedding context. Because Paul didn't write them to be used in a wedding. It's not about romance. It's about the practical part of what does it mean to love someone. Well, I'm kind to them. I don't. I, I look after their interests, not my own. Okay? I don't dishonor them. I don't easily anger with them. I try to be patient and kind. I protect. I trust. You know, I, I, one of the things I try, have tried to do really for all of my life is to let people prove to me they are not trustworthy. There's two ways to go about it, right? You could, you could make somebody prove that they trust you before you'll trust them with anything. That can take a very, very long time. Or you can begin with trusting people and then let them prove to you that they are not trustworthy. And I think that's a better way to live. It's how I've lived, and I haven't gotten burned very much by it either. However, that does not go, that does not include the, the, um, the phone calls I get from telemarketers, <laughs> just so you know. That's not covered by that statement. That's the asterisk at the end of that sentence. <laughs> so look at, in closing, look at number six. This is something Arthur's talking about. Arthur and I have talked about this in length, and I keep, you know, urging him forward, and he keeps urging me forward. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Truth is what 
conforms with reality. And reality is that there is a God who created all that there is. Including the humans and made them in his image and they tossed it all away. And God has been relentless in pursuit of these humans ever since. Until God finally had to take the lead and provide a faithful Jew in the person of Jesus who would be faithful all the way to death, even death on the cross. And who after his death and crucifixion was truly, really resurrected, not metaphorically, not non-materially, but truthfully hug him, eat with him, resurrected. It's what the word means. And who will one day return. That's that's the truth. It's an objective truth. It's objective is my saying, if I took this and threw it in the air, it's going to come down. Why? Because of gravity. That's true. That's a true statement. That's so, you'll find in the New Testament, in Paul and the other writers, a real strong commitment to the truth. And we live in a time when there are people who, who don't seem to grasp that there are truths larger than themselves and outside themselves. And it isn't all relative. It's just not. So anyway, that's it. We will return to chapter 13 next Tuesday. Anything else in the last 30 seconds I have? And then when we're leaving, if y'all would kind of pick up everything, maybe straighten the chairs a little bit up. The table, which is this big meeting of women, is happening. So then I think they're going to come in here pretty quickly here and start making the room look so pretty. <laughs> so the extent that we can help them, that will be a good thing. Okay. So, so my friends, will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, help us to know what love is. Help us to do love. Help us to do justice. Help us to be people of mercy and grace. People who are, who are kind to others. Every day. In all sorts of ways. People who are helpful to others. Every day. In all sorts of ways. Because that is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that is what it means to be your hands and feet, Lord. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.